Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Cleared Cast. I'm Katie Keller, the Editorial Communications Manager with ClearanceJobs.com, and today I was joined by Cal McClanahan, who is the Executive Director at the National Security Counselors, a D.C. area nonprofit public interest law firm that specializes in national security, whistleblower, and privacy law, often representing IC employees and contractors. He is also an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School, and you also sit on the board of directors of the National Military Intelligence Foundation. So, Cal, thank you so much for joining me today, but did I miss anything from your your long list of uh, things that you do today? No, that's about all I have time for right now. (laughs) That's it. I'm interested to hear about the National Security Counselors, so can you tell me a little bit more about what your organization does? Well, we are a nonprofit law firm. We're a 501c3, and we try to be the best of both worlds between being a traditional nonprofit organization who goes out and advocates and educates about national security law and information and privacy law, things like FOIA or declassification, and also being a law firm that represents people who are doing that. And so that's sort of our mission statement is to do practice primarily national security employment law, so pre-publication review or security clearances or declassification or whistleblowers or something like that, and the more traditional transparency side, privacy, FOIA, et cetera. I know that one of the things that national security counselors does is represent members of the IC who are needing law services you know, within those realms. Are there any interesting cases? I mean, there are a couple that we're going to talk about, I'm sure, today in our conversation. But are there any interesting cases, keeping clients confidential, of course, that you could tell us about or that it would relate to our ClearCast audience that are either security clearance holders or defense recruiters? Well, I think I have lots of interesting cases. So, <laughs> And y'all have actually written about some of them in the past, and so I'm not really – I tend to get the most – interest from you know the general public in cases like whistleblowers where you know as you would imagine you know john reedy is a client of mine who i represented in intelligence community inspector general the icig in an appeal of a ppd19 whistleblower retaliation claim and he you've you've read about him you can read about him in mcclatchy you can read about him in various other media because as it was concluded and i'll choose my words carefully here because when i reference the yahoo article that i'm about to talk about i am not confirming the accuracy of it because i don't know because it was classified material but they drew the conclusion that he was the one who blew the whistle in advance on what became the iranian chinese roll-up of our agents. And Jenna McLaughlin wrote a story about that last year, where what I can confirm is he blew the whistle on something that was a colossal intelligence failure, to use his words. And rather than addressing it, the CIA spent the better part of a decade trying to ruin him. That got a lot of interest. I was also one of my proudest moments on the sort of transparency side that is relevant to this is that it was my case for a group called Muckrock, which is a, a journalist group up in Boston, 
that got the entire declassified archives of CIA put online, as opposed to you having to drive to College Park to look at them on one of four little dinky computers. So that was a big get. That was a big success that I was happy with. That's a heck of a success. You mentioned FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, and that's uh, you know, a powerful tool that people have, I think, across the United States, being a United States citizen, but in any industry, but specifically this industry as well. So are there any interesting cases or scenarios or examples that have stood out in your career that you could talk about or walk through our audience today? Well, the most relevant to this audience is probably the one that I'm in the middle of right now. And it's a case where a YouTube lawyer, uh, educational channel named Legal Eagle, uh, Devin Stone, is doing to get records about how the pre-publication review of John Bolton's book went. And it raises all sorts of interesting challenges, you know, interesting issues like whether or not the office that did the pre-pub review in the White House is subject to FOIA and whether or not you know, records about pre-pub review are releasable or whether they even have to process the request. The end result is going to make for some very interesting case law, and we hope for some very interesting releases, because not only are we going for records about what happened with Ambassador Bolton's book in particular, we're also looking for sort of just how pre-pub review is done mm-hmm. in or around the NSC and how the Office of Legal Counsel at DOJ has viewed pre-pub review and any opinions that they might write and stuff like that. So we hope to shed light through going from sort of general to specific on everything that happened in the last awful over John Bolton's book so that we now have evidence and the public now has evidence to decide, make an educated decision, whether they believe Bolton or whether they believe the White House. You know, when they're watching this fight play out in real time and all they really have to go on is what the two sides are saying and neither one is introducing any sort of material evidence about what actually happened. That's where we hope to come in and we, and it's going to touch on what is classified, what's not classified, what can be censored, when is something released but not declassified, which is something we're going to be talking about today. You know, all of those issues are wrapped up in this case, and it's sort of a microcosm of the intersection of FOIA and transparency and classification and censorship and clearances. I have a ton of questions. I'm going to try to run through them in a succinct manner. But so with Bolton's book, I think the article that you wrote, your opinion piece was about a month ago, a couple weeks ago on completing the pre-publication review before publishing a book, like you said, classified information. So I guess my first question in terms of folks that are working with classified information from their perspective, what considerations do they need to have when they're dealing with this information? But you know, or maybe are become in a position of the case that you're working today. The key lesson that I always try to emphasize when I'm talking to somebody about pre-pub review 
is that publication and pre-publication review means dissemination to anyone who the government has not approved for it. So it does not mean you have to go through pre-pub review when you're writing a book or you're writing an op-ed. It means you have to go through pre-pub review when you're writing an email to your lawyer or to your agent or to your neighbor. Anything that you write or say, you have to put notes for an interview through pre-pub review if you're gonna be giving a speech or you're gonna be sitting on a panel, if you have prepared remarks. Anything that you intend to disseminate about the work that you do or in general sort of national security, defense, intelligence establishment work have to go through pre-publication review to make sure that you do not inadvertently reveal classified information, even if you think it's unclassified. And that is something that everyone with a clearance signs one of those non-disclosure agreements that says, I will put my things through pre-pub review and different agencies handle it differently. It is something that is woefully decentralized and every agency has their own regulations, has their own rules, but they all have some mechanism for processing a request from a would-be speaker or author to look at what they said, use their own expertise as purported classification experts to figure out, okay, this information is clear, clearable, or this information must be withheld. Sometimes it is not even classified information. Many agencies can withhold unclassified information under their NDAs, which is constitutionally suspect, I think, but no one's litigated it yet. And so no, they keep doing it until someone successfully sues them to make them stop. And if you don't go through the process, like Bolton did not, when he published without completing the process, he violated his contract. He violated his NDA. And even if there is not a shred of classified information in his book, he can still be sued for all the proceeds from his book because it's a breach of contract claim. It has nothing to do with whether or not the information is actually classified. And that's something that everyone should remember is the rules are that you have to put anything you write for somebody else through pre-pub review. And while admittedly, they are not always enforced, they can be. And in the national security realm, so much is up to the whim of a security officer that you may be the only person in your office that gets dinged for not putting something through pre-pub review. But as soon as you get dinged, there's very little you can do about it. It's sort of prosecutorial discretion, except dialed up to 11. A lot of gray area, but one of the sort of biggest takeaways is with if you don't get advanced clearance from the government, you run that risk. Right. And they can so, deny your clearance. They can fire you. They can perhaps even sue you if it's for something like a book. It's difficult to sue you if you didn't make any money from it because as I said, it's a breach of contract claim, so all they're really entitled to is your proceeds. 
If you write a book and you sell it, then they can totally take all the money you made from the book. But if you write an op-ed and give it to the Wall Street Journal and you don't get any money for it, then there's not a whole lot they can do to you other than fire you or take your security clearance away. One of the interesting things uh, that I'd love to talk about next is for folks that might read Bolton's book. So why don't we, you talk about that a little bit? There is this tension in the intelligence community and in the national security world sort of writ large between the desire to allow people to do whatever they want in their own free time and desire to control classified information. And this really came to a head in the early 2010s when we were starting to see a lot of leaks and a lot of front page news stories based on WikiLeaks or Snowden or someone like that. And the agencies didn't really know how to handle this. And so some of them went way overboard in one direction and said, if you see somebody in a bar reading a copy of the New York Times with an article in it that was based on a leak, you have to report them. And others went in the direction of don't confirm it, don't go out and talk about the thing that you read in the New York Times because the fact that you are an intelligence officer might give credence to the claim when the perspective of the government is we're not confirming whether or not this is accurate. But most settled somewhere in the middle. And this really was epitomized by a memo that was sent out by DOD in 2013 that basically said, and I'll just cite from it here, you know, sure. DOD employees are contractors who seek out classified information in the public domain, acknowledge its accuracy or existence, or proliferate the information in any way will be subject to sanctions. And that was basically the position that most people took, that if you go and read a book or you read a newspaper article or you watch a news report and they say, next up, breaking news based on recent CIA cables released through WikiLeaks, if you continue to watch it, the agencies reserve the right to punish you for it because you are, in their view, accessing information that you are not cleared for. And there is a bit of a disconnect between this policy and whether or not they actually enforce it. I asked around a little while back a bunch of security clearance lawyers and said, you know, have any of you ever heard of someone having their clearance revoked and stating in the statement of reasons, you admitted to reading a New York Times article based on WikiLeaks and no one could remember sort of having that particular case, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen because we have a fraction of a percent of all the cases of people who lose their security clearance. And so there may be some bluster to this policy, but it's still the official policy. And they still, much like reserving the right to punish whomever they want for not going through pre-pub review, they reserve the right to punish whomever they want for knowingly reading something that they have been told contains classified information. Well, I'll be interested to see if that pans out in this situation. I know that with 
different agencies, but the bureaucratic processes anyway, like you said in your article, are very arbitrary and convoluted at times. So what are the next steps in this situation or what do you foresee happening? I think that the agencies will probably, if they want to at least appear fair, they won't just single out people that they don't like and do things to them because they know that they read Bolton's book or that they saw a copy of Bolton's book on their desk at work or something. I think they will probably try to find a middle ground. Like if you go to the WikiLeaks website from your DOD computer, you're asking for trouble. Or if you go to the New York Times website from your DOD computer to read a book, uh, to read something based on a leak, based on Vault 7 or something like that, then you're asking for trouble. If you do it in your own free time, if you read Bolton's book in the privacy of your own home and you don't talk about it at work, you don't say, oh, yeah, he said this. And actually, you know, I remember when that happened because I was there. If you don't do anything to sort of go beyond quietly reading it and taking it in and using it in the rest of your life, then they will probably, in at least some cases, use that against you. They'll threaten to revoke clearances or they'll actually revoke clearances. I doubt that they would probably revoke someone's clearance solely based on this because this is where the whole person analysis comes in. And if you have a person who is just the poster child for a good intelligence officer and the only thing he did was read a copy of John Bolton's book, I don't think they're going to bounce him on it. But then again, they could. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and some of the agencies are, are arbitrary enough to just do just that if they feel like it. You have to take another step beyond it. You have to proliferate it or you have to acknowledge its correctness or something like that in order to really rise to the level of an actual revocation as opposed to having an incident report put in i i fully expect that there will be incident reports and that there probably are already incident reports in people's security files for red leaked material but they just weren't acted on. They were they were filed. They were investigated. Uh, the adjudicators decided not to do anything with it. Sort of the whole person concept, taking a look at you know these different situations or coupled with if someone ends up reading that book and an incident report is put in and yada yada. You know, again, taking a look at that whole person concept. If they are a poster child for a, you know a good worker in national security, I will be interested to see what happens with that. I'd love to ask you this question, thinking about what the ideal national security Department of Defense intelligence community, what that sort of hub looks like with the balance of information that the public has access to, but then safeguarding classified information. What does that ideally look like to you and how do we get closer to that point? That is a very tough line to stick to because there are such competing interests. I tend to disfavor anything which punishes the taking in of information that everybody else has. It's one thing if you go and 
read a file on your neighbor's desk that you're not cleared for. It's another thing because then sort of you are getting access to information that only a select few have. And that in and of itself could rise to a meritorious claim that you were a risk to national security. If everybody else has access to it, then it becomes an exercise in not only closing the barn door after all the horses are gone, but leaving the barn door open, but firing anyone who looks inside the barn. And that is a bridge too far. That That is punishing people just for the sake of maintaining a charade that the information is still secret. And while I could, even if I don't personally agree with it, I will accept a policy of if you go out and you talk about it and then confirm it, or you go out and you say, hey guys, look at this article I just saw. If you do anything sort of affirmative to proliferate the leaked information, then okay, they're not completely out of left field if they're gonna try and punish you for it. But if all you're doing is reading it, there is absolutely no good reason to deny the handful of cleared people comparatively access to something that 7 billion other people have access to. With this case that you're working on right now, any other takeaways that might resonate with our security cleared audience? Be careful what you talk about. That sounds like pablum in the security field, but I know a lot of people who think that if you see it in the newspaper, it's now publicly available and you can write about it without having to go through pre public review, for instance. Or if you're writing something that you think is unclassified, you don't have to go through pre public review because it's unclassified and that covers classified information, stuff like that. And so if you want to, and I'll sort of put this simply and snarkily, if you want to play lawyer and you want to say that you don't have to do something because of the law, you need to either be a lawyer or talk to a lawyer. Sure. <laughs> because most of the trouble that I see people getting into in these situations are from where they decided to play lawyer because they went and, and read an article about it or they talked to somebody or they saw it on Twitter. Mm-hmm that you could do this and then they did it and then they get punished and they say, but why am I being punished? And I say, because you didn't talk to me until after you did it. Because the house always wins. The deck is tremendously stacked in the government's favor. And until someone like Congress or the president or the DNI radically changes the standards, for clearances and pre-pub reviews for how sort of you have to apply them, then the current system is that the agency gets to do pretty much whatever it wants, as long as it isn't denying you a clearance because you're black or a woman. Sure. And 
they have such great discretion because they can do things that any lawyer would say are illegal. That's clearly illegal, but you don't get to go to court. Due to a case that I'm sure your audience has heard of multiple times in your pieces, there's a case called Egan that basically says you cannot challenge a security clearance decision in court in most circumstances, or at least that's the way the courts see it right now. I don't, I disagree with that reading, but that's the prevailing view. That means that if you are denied a security clearance for a patently illegal reason, your recourse is to ask to speak, speak to the manager, which is what an administrative appeal is. And if the manager agrees with the person who denied you the clearance or just rubber stamps it, there's nothing you can do about it. And so the survey 20 law professors and 20 law professors will tell you that it's illegal means nothing if you are unable to get it in front of someone who can make that call. If you can't challenge it in court, it doesn't matter if it's illegal because you can't enforce it. You have to view everything that you do where the government, is, the agency is telling you you have to do something. You think you know better. You may, in fact, know better. But if they decide to double down on it, they're going to be stuck trying to convince the people who disagree with you that they're wrong instead of convincing a third party that they're wrong. That's a good note, though. If there is no you know, legal recourse, you need to know the rules of the game that you're playing. And if you don't know those rules, you need to rely on a lawyer if you aren't one. Yeah. I mean, the system sucks. It really does. There are so many problems with the clearance system and the pre-pub review system right now. But the system is the system. And, you know, as long as it remains the system, you have to work within the system or else you're going to run the risk of no getting burned for not working within the system. And so if you really disagree with something, you can you know, write your congressman, you can write your agency director, you can write the president, you can lobby for change. But if you just go out there and say, I'm going to do a protest and I'm going to, to flout the rules, this isn't a Larry Flint situation where you can get it struck down in court. You're going to get punished and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. That's another good point. Knowing the productive sort of writing your congressman, making a FOIA request. I mean, knowing what you can do, what is you're allowed to do, knowing those different sets of rules, you know, within the security cleared world is extremely important. So I'm really excited or anxious, um, you know, to, you know, see what happens next with that. So please do keep us informed. But my last question for you, sir, is National Security Counselors, are there any publications or anything coming up that, um, you know, we can stay tuned for? Well, hopefully we'll get a lot of records <laughs> from the Bolton case, but that's probably not going to be for a few months. Bulk of our work right now is not in things that would be getting documents. We did just get or rather Muckrock, as I said, last year got a big haul of all of CIA's regs and their internal regulations, and those are available if you know where to look. I'm going to be writing something in the near future, basically going through those and pulling out all the ones that I found particularly interesting from a clearance and security law perspective. 
There is just the occasional other things. We don't write for publication nearly as much as we should. I'm pretty much the only one who writes anything that you would read as in the mass media. And maybe with more money and more time, we could put out a book or something. But right now, it's me <laughs> writing. And most of my work is spent taking care of my daughters during quarantine and preparing my course plan for the fall semester. That's a lot. And especially with COVID-19 and, you know, things still seemingly to be up in the air a bit. But, you know, I do really appreciate personally, um, you know, I've done a lot of nonprofit work. So I really do appreciate nonprofit organizations or hybrid organizations like national security counselors that are watchdog organizations for a number of different things. So, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you joining me today for this episode of Cleared Cast. But I did want to mention to our listeners, you can take a look at uh, McClanahan Cal, uh, has uh, contributed to the Clearance Jobs News site. Uh, more recently about traveling abroad and falling in love with a local and what that marriage looks like while following the Clearance <laughs> Jobs rules. <laughs> um, but uh, you can find loads of information on the security clearance process at news.clearancejobs.com. But Cal, thanks again for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. 